Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything IO Psych. Your host, Dr. Ben Butina. Joining me today is Dr. Victoria Mattingly. How are you today, Victoria? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to start by asking about your company and your book and how they tie together. Yeah, absolutely. So my company is Mattingly Solutions, and we are a women-owned workplace inclusion consulting firm. And so we do fit in that broader, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion bucket, even though those terms and the order of those terms are changing all the time. I mean, that's, I think, a distraction, but that's another conversation for another day. So we're in that DEI consulting firm space. And something that really makes us unique is that me and my co-owner, Sir Therese Price, and all of our employees are all IO psychologists. And we really ground everything in that IO psychology training, right? So like good data collection and statistical methods, really looking at all the different systems at play, um, understanding the importance of properly defining and operationalizing terms and measuring, you know, like the, this, this, there's a common phrase in the DEI space, MDEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion for those out there that might not know that. Um, it's moving the needle. Are we moving the needle? We got to move the needle, you know? And it's like, well, yeah. what are we moving the needle on, Ben? Are we talking Fahrenheit, Celsius, meters, miles? Like, what are we, like, what are yeah. we talking about, especially with inclusion? And so to answer your second question, that's really how Inclusolytics fits into this. And so the full name of the book, Inclusolytics, How Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Leaders Use Data to Drive Their Work. I hope we can plug that link somewhere on here. It's actually, you know, I know you mentioned a lot of students listen to this, these conversations, which is great. I love, I love talking with students, talking to students. And the book has been adopted in a lot of university classrooms, which I've been just shocked by, especially because we got told if we were going to self-publish that university professors would not put it on their syllabus because it's not a stamped, like it's not an accredited book or whatever. And I was like, well, I don't care. I mean, cool, but I don't care because this isn't for them. We didn't write it for students or, you know, academics. We wrote it for DEI leaders getting going with, you know, maybe new budget, new team, new, new just role where they can actually build a proper DEI strategy and function at their organization and they want to use more data to do it. You know, we needed to get this out there. You know, we wrote it in 10 months, which is wild. We literally went from post-its to published in my hand in 10 months because we wanted to get it out there as soon as possible. There were so many, it was just such a strong need. And honestly, and this is the very first line in the preface, this was not supposed to be our first book. My first book was supposed to be on allyship because that's what my dissertation mm-hmm. was on. That's how I really broke into the DEI space because initially my training was more broad. It was more around the science of learning and development. Like how, will we, how do we use training to um, affect behavior change? Right. And so, but I, I, I see the way we operationalize inclusion, just a subset of that. I still feel like I'm doing my work just in a more niche way because we define inclusion as the behaviors that result in others feeling valued, respected, seen, and heard. And people don't love that definition, especially like my executive leaders that will train or like, coach, you know, they'll be like, well, give me the list. Tell me exactly what to do. 
I'm like, well, what's going to make Ben feel included is going to look very different. That makes, you know, Maria feel included. looks very different than makes Jamal feel included or whatever, you know? So it's like, Mm -hmm. you have to get to know the person on the other side of that conversation, on the other side of that interaction to know that making eye contact with so-and-so that makes them feel seen with someone else that makes them feel uncomfortable because maybe they have some neurodivergence that makes eye contact difficult, you know? So you just like, so it's like, oh, you got to get to know your people. And I feel like at the end of the day, when I set out into IO, thinking about my grad school essay, I wanted to train the world to be more emotionally intelligent. I feel like inclusion is a subset of that because it's a matter of reading people, knowing yourself, you know, exploring our biases, challenging our biases, you know, and you know, interacting with others. So I think it's, yeah. 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 What do you run into out there in terms of like myth or misapprehensions or assumptions on the part of those business decision makers? Like what what's in their head when they hear DEI these days? I'm really lucky that the way we set up our business model at Mattingly is that we don't start working with even like having those sales conversations with executives until they come to because this work is already like so challenging and such an uphill battle that if they're not being intentional by like, we are going to seek out and pay a DEI consultant to help us do this next thing, you know, and we're going to find the people that are going to do it with data and going to do it this way. So so from a marketing perspective, you're not out there trying to pitch yourself, you're just yeah. sort of like, hey, you know, here we are. You're presenting the the best version of the company that you can online, I presume, and all that fun stuff. But mm-hmm. you really want the clients to come to you because because why? That shows a level of seriousness? It's a litmus test. It's a litmus test. If they're willing to come to us, they're bought in in a way. Because getting that buy-in, like if you, like there's research, this HR.com study that comes out year over year, and they asked HR leaders, what's the number one barrier to, you know, advancing your DEI efforts? And it's always it's a tie. It was a tie this year. It was tied between lack of metrics, ding, 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 Goosalytics, what we do at Mattingly, but then tied with lack of executive buy-in. So if that's their number one challenge is lack of executive buy-in, I can't fix that. Like, I can't go in. Like, I'm not an executive change management specialist, right? Like, I need their buying from the get-go. Even if their buying is just as much as paying for a consultant. You know what I mean? Like, because you yeah. want to get value out of that. Right. You get value out of it. Well, let me ask you this. Is that something that you know because somebody gave you that advice you just kind of figured it out on your own or is there some experience that led you to come to that conclusion? Like, Hey, you know, they got to select me. I've been very, very lucky with building this business. Like very lucky. Cause I'm an, I'm a PhD IO. Like I learned our craft and our field and our methodology, right? I don't, I didn't learn, I didn't learn anything about entrepreneurship or marketing or sales or any of that stuff, you know, but I built during COVID and my only outlet was social media. Like that was it. That was my yeah. only way of getting in front of new people. My only way. And so I leaned into it, right? And so and so combine that with I am not a saleswoman, Ben. I don't like selling. I don't want to sell. 
I didn't, I never, in my consulting days, like working for other consulting firms, I did not like being on the pre-sales team and doing the horse and pony, you know, like, and then, and then also when you're selling that hard, you're shifting the solution. Like that's what they're hiring you for, you know? When you say shifting the solution, what do you mean by that? So like, okay, you come in and I'm going to use like, I don't know the right example, but like say... Say you come in and you're trying to sell them training, right? And you're selling, like you're, you're going hard trying to sell them training. So you're having conversation after conversation. Turns out they don't need training or want training, but they need coaching back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now you're like, well, you know what? Let's do coaching. Let's pivot. Yeah. Let's do coaching. But you don't have the capacity for coaching. You don't have the expertise for coaching. You don't have the framework yeah. for coaching. Like, that's I'm not interested in that, especially when DEI is already so squishy as a field and shifting and changing. And there's no like there's very few like gold standards or like guidelines, you know, like Mattingly does X, Y, Z. And I want to be known as the best in that space. I want to be known as the best DEI measurement consulting firm in the space. I want to be known as the partners that help you, you know, work side by side with you to build sustainable solutions. So I have the best story right now. It's so exciting. One of my very first big clients Mm -hmm. who actually got through my PSYOP network. I'm very grateful for my PSYOP network. Great. Um, Very, and we built everything from scratch. Everything. The counsel, the strategy, the measurement approach, the training, the the year over year, like KPI, everything from scratch. And we were together for probably about two years. And then, like, it was so strange, Ben. She ghosted me. Like, a pl- and, like you know, and she was paying for our services. And the woman ghosted me. And it's just so interesting. So, like, I, in good faith, I mean, contract-wise, I could have kept just raking in that money. You know, that's what Later. staff companies plan on. Let's get in a license. And even if they never come to us, we're going to charge them until they cancel. I cancel. I said, I don't feel right charging you because you're not using us, right? And then that was it. And I was like, well, you know, we did so much great work. You know, I, I have no regrets. But what a sad way to end, you know, like I'm just getting ghosted. She came back around. We got ghosted because they didn't need us anymore. We did uh-huh. such a good job being their partner that we set up that structure and that function and that methodology and the right got the right people in the right places, did all the things that we do well as IOs. You know, we set up the right people. Yeah places they didn't need us and that's my goal but the cool thing is they need us now for something else and you know when it comes to like who are we going to work with to help us this new dki problem that we didn't have before oh matting these solutions because they've already done so much for us so that's like my ideal scenario and i love that story you know because if, they, if you don't need us then like i don't want that's a waste of everyone's time and i don't want the reputation it's also i'm stacking the deck I don't want the reputation of being the DEI company that can't show any impact. Forget that. I need a company that comes to me that's ready to show impact. You know, they're ready to go. So you mentioned that it's a pretty IO psych centric company that you have there. What do you think makes a difference uh, compared to maybe a DEI consulting firm that, I don't know, run by HR folks or organizational development or or something? What, What makes it different? being an IO in this space? I mean, I think it's the same answer to what makes IO different in any space compared to those fields. And it's it's our it's our 
deep understanding and use of data. We're like even our business school counterparts, you know, like, you know, PhDs in business, PhDs in management, OB and whatnot. We are still trained so much more in data than they are, you know, their theory. Yeah. And they they do research and they do good research, you know, and quite honestly, being on the practitioner side of things, we don't need to know most of the fancy stuff that we know as IOs, but that's another conversation for another day. I don't we'll, we'll have that conversation another day with a microphone running because I think it would be fascinating. We should. Um, I, I'm also interested in sort of like elements of diversity because I find that by default, when you use diversity or DEI now, even though I know those are three separate con- concepts, most people kind of default to the EEO categories, you know, race, sex, religion, etc. What are we missing? Like, what are the elements of diversity that we miss when we focus on those sort of like big banner categories? So I have two answers to this question. One is the broader answer, which is regardless of whatever the categories are, we're missing intersectionality. We can't just look in these buckets as like, you know, all right, here are all the women, here are all the black people. It's like, what about all the black women? What about all the black women over the age of 40? You know what I mean? Like there's going to be unique circumstances and trends that we see in the data, the more intersectional we can get with it, the more variables we can see. It's, it's a, how, how long we can build that regression equation, right? How, how many variables are we sticking in there? Um, so that's, that's one answer to that question. The second answer, I'm trying to pull up how we talk about, all right, I'm going to rattle off a list. I'm going to rattle off a list. I just used the other yeah. day. Oh, this training was so cool, by the way. It was with the Pittsburgh Brewers Guild. So it's like the nonprofit that like tries to advance industry-wide. And so it's like 44 breweries were represented. We had like 90 people in the room. And I gave this training. We did, we built them a database code of conduct. And then we did a training, you know, teaching them not only just how to use the code of conduct, but just like basic principles. Like what is identity? What are inclusive behaviors? What is our role? You know, like what, what at the end of the day, what is the microaggression? How do we like try to stay out of that space? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it was so cool. But anyway, here's a slide I'm just going to read off of. Okay. And the title is we all hold many identities. And we have this like kind of cool, like, like beehive, you know, kind of like hexagon, which hexagons together. And it says, yeah. you know, race, ethnicity, there's disability. And if, by the way, I'm going to start shifting that language. I'm going to talk about ability based mm-hmm. diversity, ability based inclusion. I'm very excited to talk about that moving forward. But there's, you know, age, there's caregiver status, sexual orientation, gender. You know, we could have religion in there, a veteran status. I said, did I say that? Yeah, veteran status, neurodivergence. And not lumping that with ability based. And that's been a very interesting, you know, boundary line watching shift, especially recently. We can also add in things like, of, of course, sexual orientation. I think I said that. Yeah. We can look at things like job characteristics as well. So, what's your role in the organization? What's your leadership level? What's your tenure? Um, there, you can also look at those as outcome variables, but like we still me- we measure them at, in that like demographic part of the survey. So, those. Those are the ones we measure at Mattingly. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, it's always going to shift. It at the end of the day, you know, it's interesting. Earlier today, we had our Mattingly research and development call, and what we're doing, and I'm so excited about this effort. So, you know how if you, you know, on on, on LinkedIn or on other socials, like the DEI firms 
or or the DEI leader from an internal position, right? Mm-hmm. Will post on every holiday, like happy whatever day. Right. And it just feels like so performative, you know, like it's just like what what's the purpose? You know, and like why do we need everyone posting about it? Like I just need one person to post about it and that's it. You know, like I need I just need a calendar. <laughs> like I don't understand. So and Maddenly, as I mentioned before, we talk about inclusion in terms of behaviors. You know, what can we do from like a micro-affirmation level, like subtle things, right? What can we do from inclusive leadership level? Like, and what can we do as as allies, you know, more like high risk but high reward sort of things we can do. And so like what we're going to do next year, so on this R&D call earlier today, we're finalizing the list of holidays that we're going to acknowledge or whatever next year. And it's hard because it's like, well, if we acknowledge this, how can we leave this out? I'm like, we have to pick a stand somewhere. And the stand is, how does this holiday potentially impact how you interact with people in your workplace? And how can we support that? Because for example, we're like, well, let's get rid of all like, super like religious holidays you know like it's okay if it's broad but like ash wednesday let's get rid of that and i was like you know what i don't want to get rid of ash wednesday because i worked at a consulting firm where a lot of the people who worked there were catholic and on ash wednesday they came into work with ashes on their forehead and i didn't know how to react i knew what it was for you know but there's like something brave or vulnerable about coming to work with that on your forehead you know what i mean so like i wish i had some guidelines you know, like what could I have done? Like, <laughs> and we happen to live in the same area, and having the ashes on your forehead is pretty common because it's a heavily Roman Catholic, yeah, Eastern Orthodox Catholic. But I've also noticed that some Protestant denominations will also have ash services. But it's one of those things that I, I think is becoming broader. But I'm glad you brought it up because as soon as you said Ash Wednesday, I said, wait a minute. Can't let go of that one because that's exactly that's that's one of those sort of behavioral yeah. examples that you provided where hey you know there's a visible thing that people are yeah. doing and that they're bringing it into the workplace and I wonder how many conversations they have about why is there ash on your forehead yeah or like are we supposed to have the foundations or not or whatever and so so just yeah. to like bring it home whether it's those demographic variables I listed earlier or it's the holidays that Mattingly is going to celebrate and share out. So we're going to share on each of the holidays we recognize three inclusive behaviors that you can do that day for those who celebrate or observe that holiday. So like on Ash Wednesday, what are the three things to do? You know, because you're not going to be like, happy Ash Wednesday. It's a sad day, I think. I don't think it's like a good thing. Like, <laughs> so like, how do you? Yeah. So I'm really excited about that to turn something that I feel like is performative otherwise. We've gone back and forth a lot. Like if we should acknowledge holidays and we haven't acknowledged any holidays because of trying to figure out the right balance. And so my point is we are going to end up excluding someone or something. And it's the same with these demographics. They're always going to shift. We're going to learn through this holiday effort this year. If it does add value, if it does, we're not going to do it next year, but if it does add value this year, we're going to make sure that if we get a lot of feedback that we should have had this holiday or that holiday or, you know, we didn't get much engagement on certain holidays, we'll update the list, you know. So I think we just yeah. need to – my point is we need some grace in the DEI space because, like, nothing's perfect. Nothing's fully figured out yet, but we still need to do the best we can with what we have. And so let's just keep going and learning and growing and refining. 
defining these variables or these holidays or these whatevers. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump back for a minute to ability-based diversity or ability-based diversity inclusion. Is that a new construct or just a new name? I need to Google it. Like I, I didn't even. I have. It's so new for me that I haven't even Googled the thing. Yet. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's so new to me. But I thought you just made it up. <laughs> I think. I, I mean, I thought I did, but I now I'm worried about. Well, I guess I just wonder. Like, how are you thinking differently about this as a result of that that different name? Are, are you thinking about it differently than than you think an ordinary person might think of disability? Yes. So. You know, I think I did make it up then. I'm not seeing anything in this quick little Google search. All right. Well, it's it's Very documented sad. now. So if you ever know that, that you invented this, just point people back to this episode. This episode. This is when it happened. Ability-based inclusion. Okay. I wish this was, I kind of wish we had like video options, or at least picture options for this, because I have that picture up again. Mm-hmm. And when I have that, like that, that diversity picture, and it says, and we, we all hold many identities, I go through it and I say, well, we all have an age and we all have a sexual orientation. We all have a gender. We all have a race or ethnicity. You know, like I think the DEI conversation gets lost. I'm like, well, we're only talking about certain groups. It's only, it's only, it's only, and of course it makes sense to set center certain groups depending on the context, right? That's very targeted and necessary and intentional effort. But sometimes it's more universal, right? And when we talk about diversity and we talk about even just DEI broadly, diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly, that's universal. That should apply to anyone and everyone. And we all, as I said, we all have an age. We all have gender. And the same way, it doesn't make sense for me to say we all have an age, we all have a gender, and we all have a disability. Yeah, I think most of us do have a disability one way or another, depending on how you define disability. Like most of you could define maybe having like really, really bad allergies. Like that could negatively impact your life, oh your boy, work, yes. you know, but would people say I have a disability because I have bad allergies? Like, I don't know. Like menopause, menopause could be a disability. It's, it's, it's during one stage of life. But I do remember when I was pregnant in grad school and I was like that. I don't know if you have kids, Ben, but- Okay, so I was in that big pregnant phase, like that nine months, like you were like, I just want like get this baby out of me and I'm waddling around Mm -hmm. and there's handicap spots that are always empty. And I went to, I went to, oh my my gosh, I went to Colorado State, not Carnegie Mellon, that's here in Pittsburgh. I went to Colorado State and parking was limited, very limited. And so I was like, I went to the, I think the health office. I forget which office I went to, but I was like, hey, am I eligible for like a handicap pass for the next month? And they're like, absolutely. But did I think of myself as having a disability when I was pregnant? I'm like, no. And so if we talked about this less as disability and more ability, ability based, which could be chronic or which could be episodic, like the pregnancy example, episodic. The fact I just had cancer, episodic, right? The fact I struggle with depression, chronic, right? And so like there's all these different dimensions. And if we can talk about it more in the ability-based framework, once again, we all fit into that. We all fall on some ability spectrum the same way we all have an age and we all have a gender and whatnot. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to say congratulations on beating cancer. About how long ago did you get that news? 
Oh my gosh. It was so thank you. First off, it was such a wild ride. Like, and honestly, it was just the end of like the worst year of my life. Like it was just kind of like the icing on the cake because my father passed away and that proceeded after that I had a mental health crisis. And then after when I was finally starting to feel better, I got smacked with this cancer diagnosis and it really came out of nowhere. And so like, like public service announcement, like get things on your body checked out. Cause like I got this biopsy and it was like super quick and like whatever. And didn't think twice about it because people get biopsy all the time. Cancer doesn't run on my family. I'm a fair skinned redhead. I've always taken care of my skin because I burn like, and to get the call from my dermatologist and be like, you have stage two melanoma. It's aggressive. You like, you need to drop everything, get in with this colleges. We need to get surgery right away. It was just like such a whirlwind. And so I went from, it was like June or July. I, I went from diagnosis. Uh-huh. surgery to then news of like they got it all out and remission essentially and then heal right because i got the good news which was wonderful i didn't have to wait i only had to wait like a week which is still like the longest week of my life my i'm sure yeah. that was the worst part i was okay throughout the whole experience until like post-surgery pre pre-results that was really rough and that's when i actually reached out and made a public like post. So I started off work with just like friends. Facebook's like my friends and family platform. And the amount of response I got back, Ben, was just like, it was phenomenal. Like people not just, you know, DMing me, telling me their stories, you know, like really check, truly checking in, listening, responding. People were calling, texting, like it was just been like this outpouring and that's what I needed I'm an extrovert like that's where I get my energy and my like you know just that's how my soul gets lit up by being in in community with others even if it is like virtually um and the sad thing is okay so I'm getting ahead of myself so that was beautiful and wonderful but it was just such a whirlwind because I still had to heal I'd never had major surgery before like I had like I had complications with the healing process that made it more challenging. So it was just bizarre to like, how do you celebrate something that you haven't even quite gotten through yet? Like celebrating winning the war when I still am like fighting the battles, you know, it was just like really bizarre. And when I found out that I was cancer free, even though I will be in remission and I will have like ongoing treatments and things like it's not like I'm completely out of the water or anything but I'm I'm not actively fighting cancer right now and I went to see my husband and he came outside of his work and you know I told him the great news and we embraced because like we went through it together he was just like my my saint throughout the whole experience and then the first thing I said Ben was you know they literally cut this out of me. They cut the cancer out of me. Like what amazing, like modern medicine, like age. Of yeah. Why can't they cut the depression out of my brain? Yeah. Brain? I was going to ask you about the sort of the contrast between the two. One thing that stood out to me is that uh, somehow we've arrived at a place, I think as a society where talking about cancer is considered like a good thing talking about it even if you're not directly you know you don't have it or you don't treat it but it's something that people talk about all the time it's on tv all the time it's pretty easy 
without a whole lot of effort to think of, okay, what sort of, you know, accommodations might somebody need if they're under treatment for cancer. But I'm guessing that the announcement of I have cancer gets a different response than the announcement when I have depression. Oh my gosh. Tenfold. More about that. Tenfold. Tenfold. And as, and I don't want to negate anyone who reached out to me about the cancer. Like I, as I said before, that helped me through. That was the hardest part of that was waiting for those results and having all that support that got me through. I am so grateful. And, and when I do talk about mental illness, right? Like I do get support. It's not like it's crickets by any means. You know, it's just, it's just the sheer difference in number and quantity is just interesting to notice. And then what's also interesting just to call out is even though, you know, so Therese Grace, my business partner, co-owner of Mattingly, like she, this whole year, because as I said, it's been a year from hell. The cancer was just two months. I had a whole 10 months before that. That was just horrible. Yeah. And if it wasn't for her, like she kept the company going. Like she was just amazing. I needed far, far more help from Therese when I was having mental health issues mm-hmm. than when I was having the cancer. Like, yes, I took these off after surgery, but like, I was pretty good. I, I was getting way more work done before and after this, the surgery than I was when I was at my lowest mental health wise, you know? And yeah. so the point is, yes, you're absolutely right. It's so much more normalized and destigmatized and almost like hero type stuff, you know, like you beat cancer, you know, like, right? Yeah, I'm a cancer survivor. People like applaud that. But for me to say, I will have depression for the rest of my life and I need workplace accommodations for it. Like, that's not exciting. It's a different vibe, right? It's not a hero story. It's just like, sure. this is just something that I need to, I deal. Need to deal with from time mm-hmm. to time. And I need a company that's going to have systems and processes in place. So when I can't perform at my best, that I'm not going to overall hurt my performance, hurt the, hurt the place of, you know, her right team. And it's possible because we're, we're doing it now at Mattingly. Other people have had crises on our team as well. And we're always there for each other. And we're, but we're small but mighty. So we're able to like really step in and pitch in in a way I think larger organizations don't have that agility that a small company has. But like, that's what we're building. That's what we want for our clients. That's what I want by sharing like my story. Um, so yeah, thanks for asking about that. Thanks for like well, sharing for along and being part of that community that helped get me through, you know, cause yeah. I think, yeah, people downplay like the social network stuff, but I, I get, I found a lot of community in, in the, on these platforms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have as well. Uh, some platforms more than other and, and, and boy, they do change over time. I'll, s- I, I- I need to let you go soon because I've used up probably a little more of your time than I even said that I would. But I have to ask you one more question, and that is what I love talking to practitioners, first of all. That's what I am primarily. Yeah. Uh, I do a little research, but mainly I'm a practitioner. From within the world of DEI practitioner space, what do you want researchers to know? So if I'm primarily a DEI researcher or maybe I'm a graduate student considering what kind of research I should do. What should I be looking at? What what do I need to pay attention to that I'm not paying attention to right now? And this is this is specific to DEI research. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna go back to like a really cool full circle moment I had like last week. 
So some of y'all might know I'm, I'm currently I'm host of PsyOps conversation series. Like we're like a monthly podcast live stream sort of deal. And it's, I love it so much because I didn't get to interview all these like really cool IO psychologists. I know the feeling. Like it's awesome. It's, I just get to like ask them questions and they share all their brilliance and it's fun. Like I really like interviewing people. I like, you know, I, it's just, we, it, there's shared energy even virtually, which is like a cool thing to do, you know. So anyway, the very first episode. So I I, I jumped in in like late twenties. Like we're we're coming up on episode forty, I think. So like I came in around the late twenties. So the fir- the person who hosted before me, Kelly Reed, who's she built the whole thing, which is wonderful. Yeah. Can you guess who her episode one guest was? The most famous IO psychologist in our field, in your opinion. Oh my gosh! In our field or outside of our field? Well, I was like, who who identified? I was like, general. I, I don't know that he identifies as an IO psych, but I would say of the people with like a PhD in IO psych or a closely related field, probably Adam Grant. Ding ding ding! Episode one, Ben. Episode right. one. How cool is that? Like, and now I host it. You know what I mean? And he's always yeah. idle to me. I even reached out to him when I got my dissertation topic because it was on allyship. And like he had just wrote the book with Cheryl Sandberg mm-hmm. and he's such like an, an ally in practice, you know, and he responded and connected me with other people. And he's like, I'm not the right person for this, but here's five people that are. Wow. That's great to hear. Awesome. He's awesome. But anyway, in this episode, to answer your question, and this was 2018. So what's that? Five years ago? This was five years ago. And I don't think there's been any progress since then, which is so sad. But she got asked that same question by Kelly Reed. Like, huh. what a meta moment we're in right now, by the way. But I think so. He got asked that same question by Kelly Reed. And his response was this concept called allophilia. Now, for the record, I detest that word. I think the word, it needs rebranded so bad. So if anyone's out there listening and has a better idea for what this word should be, please, please reach out to me and let me know what you think. But essentially what the word means, the construct is not just accepting diversity, not just like embracing it, but like, or celebrating it, but it's like, I'm going to actively like seek it out because I know when I interact with people who are different than me, it's going to make me a better person. Like, I'm going to benefit from this. So, like, I, like, not only just accept and celebrate, but, like, I actively seek out difference. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what the word means, like, allophilia. Love. Is like, it really different, though, than the openness to experience facet of the big five personality model? I think it's that. I think there's probably a very, very strong correlation. So, you're right. There might be some, like, construct. What's that called when there's, like, too high? Like, construct overlap or, or construct conflation. Conflation. There's another word for it in like multivariate. I remember learning. I like, okay. All right, listeners, if you know that word, tweet it at us. Collineation? Colin, is it collineation? Oh, well, I mean, there's there, there would definitely be collinearity. Collinearity. That's it. Thank you. But it's openness to experience applied specifically to identity. So it's like the opposite of being colorblind. I think it's interesting how being colorblind. So, like, for those of y'all that might know the context, like, well, I don't see race, 
So we, I don't understand why we're having this like anti-racism conversation because I don't see race. When I see Stephanie, I see a hardworking employee. I don't see that she's a black woman. You know, I don't see race, colorblind. And that used to be like a good thing. But now what we know is that you can't be colorblind because if you're colorblind, then you're putting your head under the, you know, carpet or under the rug about like what the problems actually are for people from certain identity groups, right? Quick example, I just got back from the most amazing conference Ben I've ever been on. It was on a cruise. It was called- Man, I need to go to conferences that are on cruises. Seriously, there needs to be way more conferences on cruises. And the price was was like comparable for what a normal conference is. When you, when you count up hotel and food and all that, you know, anyway. So amazing conference. But it, cruise aside, a big reason the conference was so amazing for me is the, the woman who threw it, Ashley Brundage, and she owns her company based on her book, Empowering Differences. So it was the voyage of empowerment. And Ashley is a trans woman. And so most of the attendees, maybe like, I'm going to say 50 or 60 people in the conference altogether, most of the attendees were in the trans community. And I've never been in a space like that before. Yeah. Oh, and like, what a gift that I got to like, understand. I, that's a whole like chapter in a book someday. But I, like, my point was like, that's allophilia. And I'm like, I'm like relishing in that. Like, what a cool opportunity that I get to be around so many people who have a different like world perspective and experience that I can just be here and just learn by like being in their presence, you know, and, and we're interacting, right? And like, we're understanding each other. And it's just like a really beautiful thing. So anyway, Adam Grant said, we need more researchers to stop studying unconscious bias, stop studying these like minute things and really get at how do we elevate people to go from tolerance to acceptance to celebration to like allophilia. That's what we need to do. And so like check out that episode, check out episode one. I think it's around like minute 16 or 17 or something. And do that like i want i want more of that because like ask right now mattingly's really focused on like inclusalytics and measurement and measurement strategy and like all that great juicy io stuff and i think we'll always do that but as organizations mature on their dei journey allyship's going to start coming into play really nicely like how do we start really engaging majority group members in a meaningful way so allophilia like is coupled with that very closely so like I want people to be researching that. Tell me what to do. How do I build more allies, build more genuine excitement to like, how do I just interact and engage and support and like elevate those who are different than me? Because it's going to make us all better as a result. I found this conversation to be just absolutely fascinating, Victoria. I want to thank you for being here. If listeners would like to get a hold of you, find the book, find your company, where should they go? sell me something like i'm gonna connect with you i love growing my network on linkedin i love connecting with ios i'm very involved in psyops so just connect with me on linkedin say hello don't just follow like connect i'll accept and you know my my company's on there my book's on there but yeah let's be let's be linkedin friends and thank you again for being here victoria